And yet, some people actually have a great degree of difficulty in coming to a consensus about what the church is. But if you wanted to find a biblical definition uh, of a church, not just uh, an etymological, and by etymology I mean ekklesia, the Greek word for church, a called out assembly, well that could be anything. Any called out assembly could be, uh, in that sense, a church. But Paul gives keen insight into the nature of the church as he writes to his young son in the faith, Timothy. And he tells him, for instance, that this church, the church that he would pastor and other churches that would be founded, are the house of God. What does that mean? Well, the house of God is not like the you can go to certain historical houses, Harry Truman's house. Go to Harry Truman's house, Harry Truman's not there. Go to Mark Twain's house, Mark Twain's not there. Used to be there, not there anymore. Go to Abraham Lincoln's house and he's not there. But what about the house of God? He's there. It's the place where God's glory dwells. It's the place of his presence where two or three are gathered together in my name. The Savior said, there I am in the midst. Now, this house of God, this called out assembly of the living God, because there were other assemblies of dead idols. But this assembly, gathered together particularly on the Lord's Day, was the gathering, the called out assembly of the living God. And then he says this, the pillar and ground of the truth. When I was in Ecuador, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was privileged to preach at the constitution of a church in Quito, uh, the first Reformed Baptist church in the capital city. And this is the text I preached from on the churches, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, what does that mean, the pillar and ground? Well, the ground speaks of a, uh, of a firm foundation and a pillar or a column uh, is used to either prop something up or display something. And the idea is that the church is the solid ground and that place that upholds and propagates and defends the truth. Now the church is people, right? So that means we as an assembly have been entrusted with the truth. And that's why we strive to know the truth and Proclaim the truth and understand the truth and defend the truth. But in that proclamation of the truth or in that setting there of saying that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, Paul then focuses upon the one great reality that the church is the pillar and ground of. So that while the church is entrusted with the breadth of revelation, so that we will speak on matters of human identity and what is love and, and marriage, children, and a host of things, there is one message in particular that is hers. One major truth with which we must be associated, one fundamental message above all. And it is what Paul calls the mystery of godliness. And so as we work our way through uh, this passage uh, today, I want to do it under two headings. First of all, the, briefly, the declaration of the mystery <coughs> excuse me, of godliness. And then secondly, the unfolding of the mystery 
of godliness. Consider first the declaration of the mystery of godliness. Paul says that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth and, and it could be the, the reading is, that is to say, this is the truth of which we are preeminently the pillar and the ground. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, a mystery in the Bible is not like um, an Agatha Christie mystery. It's not like a nice cozy mystery or a, or a whodunit. But the word in the original has the idea of something that God has revealed that was previously hidden. Something that we could not figure out by means of, say, the empirical or scientific method. We wouldn't be able to figure this out, that is, unless God had spoken, unless God had revealed it. We needed revelation from God in order to understand. This is the mystery. And Paul says that this mystery is great. And by that he means it is wonderful. It is glorious. It is all-encompassing. In fact, he says it is so great that it is without controversy. Wow. What in the world is there without controversy? I mean, we, we, we argue about everything today. But what Paul is saying, when we understand what this is, there's no arguing that this is great. Can you try to get 100 people to agree on anything? Or even try to get 100 Christians to agree on, on certain truths, and it's hard. You try to get them all to admit what's important. Well, here's one thing we can all agree on. Every Christian in every age, in every nation of the world, can agree together upon this. There is one thing when we say it is great, there ought to be, so that when we say it is great, there ought to be no dissension. No one can say otherwise. Some translations say, now, beyond all question. And others say, it is great by common confession. And that word confession does mean this is something we all agree on. It is something that we all say the same thing about. This mystery that accords with godliness. This message that is from God and about God and that leads to the transformation of life is something that he says is beyond all dispute, great. All right, now we're going to spend most of our time looking at the unfolding of the mystery of godliness. <clears throat> the mystery of godliness unfolds in six ways. Now, this is most likely either an ancient creed or an ancient hymn something that the early church would have sung or that they would have stated, something that all of them knew about. And so let's unfold this mystery, this revelation of godliness. And the first is that God became a man. God was manifested in the flesh. Now, some will, if you have other translations, you might uh, see there, there's a textual variant. It simply says, he was manifested in the flesh. But who was the he? 
He's the, he, he's the word that we looked at in the previous hour. God was manifested in the flesh. Why is the birth of this baby so celebrated? Why is it that even those who do not know him and love him and serve him find something that draws them to this scene? Why is it that this event, the incarnation, the birth of the Lord Jesus, why is this the focus of a thousand songs and more? So uh, <clears throat> this is an interesting statement. Just, I don't want to get distracted with this, but some of us have, have discussed this on, on some occasions. If you study the scriptures and you, and you look at the apostolic message, the apostolic message assumes the incarnation. It doesn't say a lot about it. But the apostolic gospel focuses a lot on the resurrection. But if you look in our hymnal, there are only like eight resurrection hymns. And there are, what, I don't know, a dozens, a two dozen Advent hymns. And why is it that, they, that this is the, the cause of such singing? Well, because great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. What are you going to say about that? It is the event that has spawned thousands of songs. Literally billions of pages have been written. Millions of sermons have focused upon this event. And why so? Listen, I understand sometimes as Christians, you know, maybe some people say, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't make much of Christmas and all that. Well, fine. But don't minimize the incarnation. You don't like trees. You don't like Santa. Fine. You don't like little candy canes and all that. Fine. You don't, you don't, you don't have to. You don't have to like Hallmark. You don't have to like cold weather. And even in, I was in Ecuador, again, I was in Ecuador, you know, which was on the equator. And of course, it's like 200 degrees out. And there are, they have snowmen over there. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing, uh, 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 you know, fake snowmen. But, and you go around and you hear songs about let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. That's become part of the lore. But why? But, but why do we? as believers why are we drawn to this truth well because it's undeniably great and it is worthy of discussion and worthy of song and how can there not be joy on the earth when god was manifested in the flesh now you have to understand who god is we, we focused a little bit on on what the what flesh is this morning Listen to what our confession says about God. And, and this is just taking many Bible verses, basically, and putting them together. The Lord our God is but, only, is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only has immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, 
abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. That's who God is. And that God was manifested in the flesh. That God, not a weak God, not a God of our imagination, not a God who's just a little bit better than us, but the glorious self-existent second person of the Godhead took on flesh, incarnation as we said, putting on flesh. What the great mystery of godliness tells us, and this is what the church is the pillar and ground of, is that we announce to the world that God became flesh. That the baby born of Mary, a real live baby, a baby of flesh and blood, was none other than God in human flesh. We sang in the last hour, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Jesus, the essence of Emmanuel, God with us. But my friends, it's not simply that God was with us, it's why God was with us that is so crucial. You know, God did not become a man simply to learn what it's like to eat and drink and sleep. I've seen these movies sometimes, you know, where an angel maybe falls in love with somebody or he's sent down to earth and he kind of wondering what it's like to be a man so that he's able to become a human for a little while. So, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's not why God did this. It was not simply to experience all that men experience, though he did that. It was not only to sympathize with our humanity and our weakness, though he did that. It was not only to know our temptation and trials, though he did that. He took on flesh and blood that in that flesh and blood he might keep God's law and become that perfect sacrifice to take away the guilt of the world. Jesus was told by the angel that his wife would give birth to a son whose name would be called Jesus and that he would take away the sins of his people. I mean, can anyone dispute that this is anything other than indisputably great? I mean, that the God who we have offended would take on flesh and blood in order to take away our guilt. Now the mystery unfolds secondly in that he was justified in the spirit or vindicated in the spirit. When we think of the scene of the manger and we think of the angels and the shepherds, we think of later the, the wise men, the, the magi who come from afar, and all of them give honor to this little little one. We might think, again, that if God came into the world to live as one of us and to demonstrate his great love for us, that he would be universally loved and adored. But that's not the case. This one, though glorious in his birth, was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When he came to this world, they placed him upon a cross. But what we are reminded of here is that though he died in shame, he was raised in glory 
and that in being raised by in glory, he was justified by the spirit of God. That he not only died, but he also rose from the dead. Again, justified here means a vindication. On the cross, he was mocked. He saved others, let him save himself. On the cross, he was jeered. Think of all that they said about him. And there he was, silent as a lamb before its shearer. And yet God the Father vindicated God the Son by means of the Holy Spirit when he raised him from the dead, just as he vindicated him at his baptism. When the Spirit descended as a dove and the sound from heaven came with the words, This is my beloved Son. Then we read of him that this mystery is glorious and that he was seen by angels. Somebody might say, well, I think I've, I've been seen by angels. Well, not in this way. Before his incarnation, the Bible teaches us that Jesus was loved and adored by the angels. In fact, there's a very powerful portrait of this in Isaiah chapter 6. This is the vision that Isaiah had when he goes into the temple in the vision, and he sees the Lord sitting on his throne high and lifted up. And we read there about the angels that surround the throne, and they have six wings in this vision. And with two, they cover their face, and with two, they cover their feet, and with two, they fly. And they cry out incessantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And John tells us in John chapter 12 that this happened when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord Jesus before he became a man. He was seen by angels. In our Lord's day, there was a cult of angel worship. People were fascinated by these ministering spirits in much the same way that many people are today. But the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is exalted far above the angelic host. Angelic hosts come and they, they minister at his birth. They minister to him in the days of his flesh. They come to him in his suffering in the garden. They proclaim his resurrection from the dead. They accompany his ascension into heaven. And they announce his second coming. And the question comes, why would you worship those who worship another? Why would anybody worship an angel when angels worship him? The fourth thing that we must know about him is that he was preached among the Gentiles. We read in the uh, scripture reading uh, in Luke chapter 2 about this man Simeon, the just and devout Jewish man waiting for the consolation uh, of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed again that he would not see death until he had seen the Messiah, that is the Lord's Christ and he comes and he looks at the child and he says my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel for thousands of years the revelation of God existed in a thin strip along the Mediterranean and the others dwelt in darkness. And the Bible says in the coming of, uh, of Jesus, those who dwelt in the shadow of darkness and death, upon them a great light has shined. For hundreds and hundreds of years, Jews and Gentiles were separate one from another. 
And that separation was largely due to religion. But when the Messiah came, yes, he would be the king of the Jews and the king of his people, Israel. But he also says that I have come not for them only, but also for the Greek, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And the message of the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and it continues to the, remost, the remotest part of the world, which is one of the great blessings I have, though as a part of me, I hate the travel that I do lately. But it is so cool to go to Cuba, a place that is just all my life has just been known for its Fidel Castro and communism and, you know, all, all of this. And to go and to be able to go there and to preach the gospel in the church and to hear the saints of God in Cuba singing the praises of Jesus. And to see people in Ecuador and some from the mountain region, some of the, the Indian regions where people like Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott went. And to see that the gospel has gone there and that churches are being established. To see... Uh, some of those who came to my pastoral theology class, and of course I'm, I'm giving all this nice highfalutin theology here and there about pastors need to know this and that. And he goes, Jim, the guys in my jungle don't even know how to read. Does that mean they can't be pastors? Those are the kinds of questions. But you know what's wonderful? They, they may not read, but they've understood that Jesus had been preached among the Gentiles. And that very closely now says <coughs> he was believed on in the world. How many different languages today have sung of the wonders of God incarnate? And how many different tongues, tribes, and nations in huts, in open fields, in buildings ancient and modern, men and women and young people of different tongues and tribes and peoples and nations have sung the songs of songs. They have sung the truths that we have sung today. Everywhere the gospel has gone, it has found some success. So to mention again, so one of the men I met while I was in Ecuador was a fellow from Albania. And Albania has been in my mind for 40 years or more because when my wife and I were students at Columbia Bible College in South Carolina. There was a couple who had it as their ambition. We want to go to Albania. And the reason they want to go to Albania is because there are no Christians in Albania. It's the most closed country in the world. There are no churches and no believers. And now 40 years later, I'm talking to a guy. He says, well, I was part of this church. And then I moved over here. And I was in this church. And now I'm going to go over. And I want to plant a church eventually. Glory to God in the highest. His name is being spread. He is going forth, conquering and to conquer. He is winning the hearts and minds and love and devotion of men and women and young people. Everywhere the gospel has gone again, it has found some success. And even this very day, there will, be, there will no doubt be those who will for the first time believe on the message that the God of heaven and earth became a man that the Lord Jesus stepped into time to live and to die for us. And the final truth that forms this great mystery, which God has made known, is that he was received up to glory. He lived in poverty. He labored in relative obscurity. 
He died in agony, but he was raised up powerfully and received triumphantly into glory at the Father's right hand where he sits at this day, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. And that, my friends, is the greatest story ever told. That's the story of redemption. That's the story of new life. That's the story of hope for sinners. And it's my hope that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that one who was himself God. All right, so true confession time. This morning, as I was preaching, I misplaced half my notes. That's why you make sure you study before you get up to preach. And though I said most of what I wanted to say, I didn't say this, and I think this could be a good place for it. In the exposition of the word was made flesh, I had, uh, was quoting J.C. Ryle. And J.C. Ryle, quoting from his own church document, says this, the Son, who is the word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very and eternal God and of one substance with the Father took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin of her substance so that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say the Godhead and the manhood were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, truly God and truly man. That is the most valuable declaration. This is what Ryle says. This is sound speech which cannot be condemned. This is our story. A body was prepared for him so that he would become a man for us, that he lived for us, that he died for us, that he was raised for us, that he reigns for us, and one day he will come for us. That's the message of the manger. And that's why choirs of angels sang his birth. That is why we sing it 2,000 years later. And that's why it will be sung until the end of the world. I bring you good tidings of great joy for all people. A Savior has been born for us who is Christ the Lord. And so I wonder for you, I do not ask you simply, do you believe this is true, that this is objectively so? But is this, is this your song, not, not your tradition, not just your creed, but that this is the foundation and joy of your heart. That whatever else happens, we'll have more to say about this. I don't want to get ahead of myself with what I'm planning to preach, God willing, next week. But there's a, there's a number of us here that if we could have gone back to January 1 of 2023, and God were to say to you, this is what this year is going to bring to you. These are the losses you will endure. These are the struggles and pains. These are the tears that you will shed. And the thought could be, Lord, I don't think I can. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. And were it not for the reality that God was manifested in the flesh, were it not for the truth that he was justified by the Spirit and seen by angels and preached among the Gentiles and believed on in the world and received up into glory, then I would not be able to face 
all of the uncertainties of the year ahead. May it be that Christ in him crucified, the God who became a man, will become the joy of your heart. Well, let's pray and let's ask God's blessing on these things. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your kindness and mercy to us and the love we have for each other as your people, Lord, for the love you bear to us. Father, receive uh, our worship for all that you have done in planning and bringing about our eternal redemption. We bring you glory through Jesus the Son. Amen. Amen.